This is 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. Uh, we're honored to have Ian O'Connor, author of the book Coach K that came out this week, considering Duke is probably going to be number one this week, and they play Carolina in the final game at Cameron Interstate for Coach K. I think this would be your great guest to have on. Thanks a lot for coming on, Ian, to Iron Sports. My pleasure, Ira. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. And yeah. I went to Duke Law School, and I'm wearing all Duke, so you know, and I'm you know, pumped to seeing a zillion Duke basketball games in my life. So, But I learned, <laughs> as someone who's followed Duke, I read your entire book. Great, great book, and I learned a lot. So, so as someone who watched every game, I just every nuggets, it's just tremendous. But I want to just jump into the, the book right now is about – Talk about Coach K and his background in terms of growing up with his mom and his dad, and I think that sort of molded him to what he is today. No question, Ira. He was a real blue-collar kid, in some ways a street kid, and his parents didn't have high school educations. They were the children of, of Polish immigrants. His mother was a cleaning lady who had two dresses to her name, perfectly pressed, always hanging in her closet. His father was an elevator operator. They basically spent their lives laboring for wealthy people. And, and his father changed his name from Krzyzewski to Cross to avoid discrimination, both in edu- uh, employment opportunities and perhaps educational opportunities for his children. They didn't want Mike and his big brother, Bill, to speak Polish in school or to take language classes. They wanted a complete disconnect from the homeland because they thought that would give them the best opportunity to make it in America. So I really feel Mike was shaped by that as a human being and then even as a coach. Just I think there's a competitive rage inside of him that's really been the force behind building the best college basketball program in America over the better part of three, four decades. So I, I think that that really does say a lot about him and his approach. And listen, his mentor, Bobby Knight, would cross the line of acceptable conduct coach to player in terms of, of relationships and just how he coached his team and his players. Mike would go up to that line, but I don't think he would ever cross it. And that was the difference between Knight and Krzyzewski. And you mentioned Bobby Knight recruits him when Bobby Knight's a coach at Army. Coach K didn't want to go to, to Army. His parents said, well, this is a great opportunity to go to Army. He's looking for reasons not to, but he ends up going there and playing for him. And then you, the whole book, you weave the whole relationship. I mean, this is Shakespearean in terms of his relationship with Knight. They were, they, they had, they were close as close could be co- as an assistant coach. They fell apart then fell back in this, just the, the stories between the two of them and the fact that they have this fractured relationship right now. Right, and it, I think the relationship is over. I, I guess it's possible it could be rekindled here uh, after Mike retires uh, officially. And But he, uh, he did not want to go to West Point. He had no interest in being a soldier. But Bob Knight was very persuasive, and his parents felt that, hey, the sons of very – and at that point, the academy had not uh, admitted any women. The sons of very prominent people in this country go to West Point. So you're going. <laughs> okay, this is a great opportunity. So they would sit in the kitchen, and Mike would be in the living room, and they lived in a small place. And they would speak in Polish, but occasionally they would, in English, say, stupid Mike, out loud, so he would know what they were talking about. <laughs> and so finally he decided to go, and you know, Knight really raised him in, in the game and in the business of coaching. Knight helped him. Well, Knight hired him, first of all, in 74-75 at Indiana as a grad assistant, and that was a great, great Indiana team and taught him how to win at the highest levels of Division One. He helped him get the Army job. He helped him get the Duke job. He put him on the Pan Am game staff in 79. So he did a, a lot of helping, advising, counseling over the years. But as Mike started winning, and then, of course, Krzyzewski beat 
night at the Final Four in 92, which was the beginning of the end of their relationship. They had a lot of ups and downs, more downs than ups over the years. But it ended at Pinehurst in 2015. There was a West Point reunion. It was the uh, 50th anniversary of Knight's first team at Army. And Krzyzewski approached Knight's table, and Knight completely ignored him. So, so Mike stormed out of the room, and some of his old West Point teammates followed him out the door. And he said to them, that is the last bleeping time I ever tried with that, this guy. I, I am done, never again. Now, he had said those words before after some slights real more than imagined. But this time he meant it. And and my reporting shows that they never spoke again. We're talking to Ed O'Connor, who wrote the definitive book on Coach K, which is out today. A total must read for any sports fan. And then when he went to Army to be the coach, when he left Indiana, went back to Army, Knight helped him get that. He did not have this. I mean, he went, you know, success, but not, I mean, the fact that his final year at Army, he was 9-17. and It doesn't appear to be like the record that someone was going to have to win over 1,000 games. Right, and, and or even to get a head coaching job in the ACC. Are you kidding me? A Duke had been in the national championship game two years earlier. So to hire a nine and seventeen coach in Army, that AD Tom Butters, man, uh, just you would never see an AD take that kind of chance today. But he had a gut feeling, and Chichesky was great in the interview process. There was a Duke athletics official at the time, a former player named Steve Vesendak, who was a Chichesky supporter. He had seen him coach a little bit, loved the way he coached defense. Butters was a defense guy, so they gambled on him. And in the early years, it got rocky. I mean, Dean Smith wins the national title next door in 82. Jim Valvano wins the national title next door in 83. And Mike's losing to Wagner at home. (laughs) So I don't know how he survived. I really don't. The, The boosters wanted him out, the alums, the students, the fans, even some faculty members. And he survived. And not only that, Tom Butters doubled down and gave him a contract extension. Well, you said so, in the book, you wrote in the book that, that, that he called, Butters called Knight because he was, had fat, this, you know, respect for Knight. And Knight said, you know, what should I do? I, I don't want to fire him. And, but, and Knight was the one who gave him the idea. You got to extend him. Yeah. And uh, who was sitting in the room at the time? A Knight friend, uh, a coaching friend. And he told him, hey, listen, or he listened to me and he relayed the story to me that basically he felt Butters was calling for Knight's permission to fire Krzyzewski. <laughs> now, he couldn't. He could. It was Tom Miller who then became the coach at uh, Cornell. And, and Tom Miller uh, said, I'm sitting in the office. I know I can't hear every word that Tom Butters is saying to Bob Knight, but I could tell. He, it, it seemed to him that he wanted Knight to say it's okay to fire him. And Knight didn't say that. Knight said, give him a contract extension, and Butters eventually did. But, man, that, that recruiting class, of course, the documentary on ESPN, Jay Billis, Mark Gallery, Henderson, but it was Johnny Dawkins that saved Coach K. That was the recruit he needed to suddenly compete against the, the great players at North Carolina from Michael Jordan going forward. And he just didn't have the talent to compete against some of those powerhouse ACC teams. But Johnny Dawkins started the process of him collecting that talent. And they go to the 86 National Championship game, lose to a Louisville team they should have beaten, had the lead on them late, and Mike made a bad coaching decision. He took the air out of the ball. And they started taking bad shots at the end of the shot clock. And Billy Packer on the air said this is a mistake, and he was right. So I think Coach K carried that with him until he won it all in 91. I think that 86 game really haunted him. 
Well, and then you know, I went to law school with Jay Billis, and, and again, that was the, you know, he not only was Do Allery, Dawkins, and Billis, you know, great players, they were quality individuals, and they really set the tone and embraced the whole, um, but as you mentioned, when he first came in, and Duke, Duke, when he got the job, the players that were there under Foster didn't like Coach K. They, they rebelled against him, and sort of, and it was that point, but then when he finally got his players in, and you mentioned how great Dawkins is, that sort of set the everything in motion. Yeah, and, and Dawkins... He, and, and Bill, Billis and, and Allery and Henderson, those were good players, but Dawkins was a special player. And, and as soon as he got on campus, everybody could see it. And he was small. And I remember Jay Billis telling me a story of visiting him for the first time in Washington, D.C. And he hadn't met him yet. This was before they started their, their freshman year. And he was in the area, so he stopped by and, and he knocked on the door and Dawkins answered, but he assumed it was his little brother. He couldn't believe how small he was. <laughs> and and then he was just like, this is, this is Johnny Dawkins? So they ended up playing a, playing a pickup game, I believe it was the same day. And then he said about 10 minutes in, I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. <laughs> you know, this guy's going to be pretty special in college. And uh, despite how small he was and skinny, and certainly he was. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was a long haul getting there. There's a lot of young fans of college sports who have no idea that Coach K at one point was the guy who couldn't win the big one. He was Marv Levy before Marv Levy, and, and Duke was the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. I mean, you lose the national title game in 86. You lose in the Final Four in 88 and 89. You get destroyed in the national championship game in 90 by Vegas. So that 91 game, that rematch against UNLV, really just changed everything. I loved how you broke that game down because, to me, I've, I was obsessed with that Vegas team. It was one of the greatest basketball teams I've ever seen. I would stay up late at night. You know, it was on it. Like their games were 10 or 11 o'clock at night. They're blowing teams out by 30 and 40 points. And they had already beat Duke the year before by 30. And they were undefeated. They were going to break Bobby Knight's you know, undefeated record. And you're thinking so great. And to me... It was like the combination when you have these two great powers, which people at point did not think Duke was that going to be that power. They were a 10-point underdog. So I think it was, it's rare that you have two dynasties, in college basketball, it's hard to dynasty, but two of these great elite teams that played on one night when they both were at their superpower strength almost. Yeah, and I was on the Vegas plane, believe it or not, flying uh, from uh, Vegas to Indianapolis, and I sat next to Tark, Jerry Tarkanian, for part of that trip. And, and I remember on that plane, he said, I have nobody to cover Christian Leitner. And, I, and he said it more than once, and I thought he was just one of these heavily favored coaches who was trying to act concerned when he really wasn't. But as it turned out, he had nobody to cover Christian Leitner. <laughs> and so, but it was Bobby Hurley's shot, down five, two minutes and chains left. That three-pointer Hurley made changed everything. If he, if he misses that shot, I, I think Duke loses again. Now you go into the 92 season, Leitner senior year, and the burden of never winning the big one is still there, and it just got bigger. So it was a special night, a special moment. Of course, it almost in a way reminded me of Lake Placid where the U.S. team beat the much heavily favored Soviet Union team, and it wasn't the final. It's remembered as the gold medal game. It wasn't. It was the semifinal. They had to come back and beat Finland, a good Finland team, and Herb Brooks was terrified of a letdown. And, and I know Krzyzewski was terrified of a letdown after beating an unbeatable Vegas team, which I thought was the best college basketball team I had ever seen. And now you have to come back and beat Kansas for the national title. So if you see on the replay, and you probably Ira, remember this, but as soon as that game's over, Hurley gets the loose ball rebound off the hand, uh, Anderson Hunt brick, and Krzyzewski's out on the court with his palms facing the court, waving downward, like – 
calm down. We didn't win the national title. This is not what we came for. And, and right away, as soon as that game was over, Coach K was coaching for Monday night against Kansas, and it worked out in a pretty good way. And then, I mean, I was at law school. I was at all these three games, but the 91-92, the end of that, in terms of, you know, with Leitner, Hurley, and Grand Hill, the Kentucky game, the, the most, some people consider the most famous basketball game of all time. Then he meets Bobby Knight in the semifinals in Minneapolis, beats Bobby Knight, and then to play the Fab Five Michigan team in the championship game. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, this was crazy. And then he wins, wins the back-to-back title. Right, and I was in the spectrum in Philadelphia for that game. It's probably the greatest play shot moment in the history of college basketball. And just, I I remember talking to players who, on their way back to the huddle after Kentucky took the lead on Sean Woods, sort of lucky banker with 2.1 seconds left in overtime, they felt like it's over. Okay, well, at least we won the national title last year. We'll get our vacation and golf plans together. And once they got in that huddle and Grant Hill's father, Calvin Hill, the great NFL running back, he said he could tell right away that Krzyzewski grabbed them and seized the moment and convinced them that they could actually pull this off. So they ran the same play they ran against Wake Forest early in the year when Grant Hill fired it three quarters the length of the floor and it curved right to left and went. And Leitner caught it, but his foot was on the line out of bounds, so they lose that game. This time he didn't curve it. He threw a fastball, <laughs> a long one, and it was a perfect strike strike to Leitner, and Patino helped him out two ways. He didn't put a man on the ball on the inbound, so Grand Hill had a clear look. And he told the two defenders, Feldhaus and Pelfrey, don't foul. Whatever you do, don't foul. Well, they took that to mean as soon as Leitner caught it, just back off. Well, they gave a guy who hadn't missed a shot all night on the line or from the field a free look. And I'll never forget when that ball was in the air, I was courtside, and I felt like I was looking right over Leitner's shoulder, when, his right shoulder, when he shot it. And a guy, Tim Layden, from uh, at the time New York Newsday, was sitting next to me. We both said the same thing afterward. When that ball was in the air, you could tell it was going in. And that night, Leitner was 10 for 10 from the field, 10 for 10 from the line, one for one from three-point range. So it took the perfect player to win the perfect game. I look across the court. Krzyzewski's got a, a white towel in his hand. He spikes it like a football in the end zone. And later in the press conference, I asked him, outside of strategy, what did you tell your team in that final huddle? And he said, we're going to win the game. We will win. <laughs> and he got them to believe, and that was his greatness as a coach. And then you mentioned, and people forget this time, he, there was a time right after that, a couple years later, where he has back problems, exhaustion. He had literally stepped away, and, and rarely, and this wasn't like a few years ago. This was 20-some years ago, and he could have ended his career. He could have become like a we, you know, John Madden just passed away. This could have been almost a John Madden situation where through everything else he would just stepped away, but he stepped away in the middle of the year, but then came back to Duke and coach. Didn't take two years off, just took that year off and then came back as a coach. That's right, and his wife really saved him from himself there. He was in the process of destroying his career. He was driving himself into the ground physically, emotionally, in every way. And there was a day, now he came back too early from back surgery and he looked like death. That's what his player said. He looked green. He looked gray. His coloring was awful. And he he had lost weight. He couldn't eat. I think Mickey said his wife, he looked like he was 80 years old. So she made a doctor's appointment. She had had enough. And she told him, It was right at the same time as practice, basically. I think it was 2 o'clock. And she said, I've never given you an ultimatum of any kind in our marriage, but I'm giving you one today. You will either be at that doctor's appointment today and blow off practice, or I will know you chose basketball over me. (laughs) And so she drove to that appointment, and she was really worried that his car wouldn't be there, but she pulled up and it was there. 
And so ultimately that led to him taking the rest of the season off to get himself together because he was effectively suffering a mental and physical breakdown. And uh, Pete Gaudet took over. He was terrible as a head coach. The guy was a really good assistant coach, but just not a head coach. Same thing at Army when he took over for Krzyzewski. And Coach K came back. He replaced Gaudet. He he effectively fired him. Brought in, uh, well, Quinn Snyder. He had uh, Quinn Snyder, I believe, was promoted. And Tim O'Toole was brought in. Younger, energetic guys. And by 99... A few years later, he had one of his best teams. They go to the national championship game. They're a couple plays away from being 39-0 and 0, uh, in that year, and they lost to UConn. That was maybe his best team that ever lost. But it, uh, he, he adapted. He changed. Mickey was a big figure in his life for these 42 years. She was a, basically the co-head coach. So she deserves a lot of credit for stepping in in 95 and saving Coach K from himself. And you talk about adaption and change, and I compare him to Nick Saban in terms of being defensive-minded, defensive-minded, and now having this explosive offense. At first, Coach K was, you know, what, no one's going to be, you know, four-year coach, four-year players. Leitner's going to be there four years. Hill's going to be there four years. And then suddenly, he embraced the one-and-done and for the last two decades was, was recruiting the, uh, you know, the players that would just stay for one year and leave the Kyrie Irvings, those type of players. I think the experience, and I know the experience in Beijing in 2008 coaching Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and company, that really, when he got back to Durham, that really changed his approach. He said, you know what? I want to coach the best players in the world at any particular level. So to do that, I have to embrace one and done. So he goes after John Wall, loses him to Kentucky. They got in late on John Wall, but he gets Kyrie Irving. Austin Rivers was a slam dunk one and done at the time. They get Jabari Parker, Okafor. Winslow, they win the national title in 2015. What's amazing is in 2010, with the leftover players who were still there, a, a traditional Duke team of upperclassmen, Zubek and John Shire was the star of that team. They win a national title with that group. Five years later, he wins it with a one-and-done group. So it just showed you how Coach K adapted. I think the Olympic experience certainly had an impact on him in that regard. And I, I'll never forget thinking when he started becoming John Calipari, really, in his recruiting approach, when I was in the spectrum in 92 for that moment, we all thought this is the way Coach K's program will always look. Three- and four-year players, upperclassmen, and, and kids who are graduating. We never in a million years would have thought that he would someday run a basically an NBA factory. And that's what Duke became. So uh, he changed, he adapted, and that's why – he lasted much longer than, say, Bob Knight and others who didn't adapt. And that's why at age 75, he still has a chance to win his sixth national title. Right. And then and the, you addressed in the book, I mean, this is, you want to say this be the definitive uh, biography of him. And, and you did go over and say, the question everyone says, how, you know, did Duke cheat? How does Coach K cheat? And you analyze the situations and everything and, and talk to the compliance officers and, you know, really put, I, I thought, gave enough to the book to say, to analyze about the whole issues about, you know, was Duke, you know, did, did Duke, were they so good because they were cheating? Yeah, and I don't think uh, Duke is a, certainly a cheating program. I think they're as clean a program as you're going to find in America at the highest level of, of major college basketball. And I think that I don't have in the book anything that Mike Krzyzewski did. There were questions that would pop up over the years about NCAA rules violations and whether third parties got involved. And, hey, it did happen once. It was proven that Corey Maggette took money from an AAU coach. It wasn't a ton of money. It was $2,000 but he should have been ineligible to play that 99 season when 
he played in 39 games and they won 37. And I talked to coaches who thought Duke and Mike Krzyzewski should have lost those 37 victories that it's happened in other cases. So rival coaches thought the NCAA gave Duke the benefit of the doubt a lot. And that was a one example and felt that if the same thing happened at other schools, other programs, those 37 victories, for instance, would have been docked Shoot, I, I appreciate the fact that Duke, gave me access to Chris Kennedy, their compliance director, so I can ask him about that case and others, the Zion Williamson investigation and other issues that popped up. Not many over 40 years, 42 years at Duke, but the Lance Thomas jewelry case and, and like I said, the Zion case and a few others. And so I do explore that in the book. And, and, and in any program, no matter how clean you are, there are going to be things that happen that the coaching staff is not aware of. And it gets objective. The NCA has penalized programs that they believe, for instance, the coaching staff was not aware of a certain kid getting money from an agent or a third party and said this, this, this program was penalized because the coaching staff should have known, even if they didn't, that's objective. So you get to the McGetty case and the NCA ruled that the Duke coaching staff didn't know and had no reason to know. So where's the line and whether or not you should have known? And that's where rival coaches and schools say Duke gets the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. And then you, know, you bring up the Zion. And, and you mentioned the one team earlier, that the Elton Brand team that was so good. I, I thought the Zion team was unbeatable uh, with Zion healthy. I mean, that's the one time we've had Zion healthy at, and they're playing a Michigan State team. And, and you went through that game and where, where he just seemed to not be able to stop R.J. Barrett from shooting the ball when it was like clear. I was sitting three rows from the court. Just throw it to Zion. He's unstoppable. He was going to score every single time. And it just seemed that was so I was so frustrated of all the losses I think I've seen. I think that I saw no reason why Duke could lose with Zion on the team. He was just so, so far superior than every other college basketball player. The coaches I talked to, Iron uh, Pete Gillen's quoted in the book saying this, Pete, of course, the former coach of Virginia, that Mike is an X's and O's guy, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. That's not his strength. And that when you played against Duke, listen, the guy is probably the greatest college basketball coach of all time in the eyes of his peers. But one thing they thought was a bit of a weakness, and his strengths were so profoundly good that it overwhelmed this one weakness, is getting his best player a big shot in a big moment uh, was not something that he was great at. And that game, you see it. There was too much R.J. Barrett at the end of that game and not enough Zion Williamson trying to get Zion in a position on the floor to get him a beneficial shot to maybe beat Michigan State. And that did not happen in that game, and that was an example of that, that uh, he's the best motivator ever. He is very good defensively. And it's interesting because the guy drew up the greatest play in, in the sports history. <laughs> right. and, yet, and yet people think he's not great in endgame situations on offense. But uh, that, that was something that came up repeatedly in my interviews. And the last thing we have, we're fortunate to have Ian O'Connor about his book, Coach K, tremendous book. And I think the issue from the whole book is like the last five pages you address in terms of the naming a successor. And a lot of people thought, I mean, myself thought maybe Quinn Snyder would be the name, but you show in the book that no, it was not going to be Quinn Snyder, but it really came down between Tommy Amaker at Harvard and uh, John Shire, who's assistant on his staff. And you went through in the book in terms of the decision that was made to put, make Shire the successor and how it was done. Right. The university offered the job to Amaker, a guy in his mid-50s who had been a head coach at Seton Hall, Michigan, and, and then now Harvard. And, and Mike didn't want that to happen. And Mike was close to Amaker, and uh, I don't think they are anymore, to be honest with you. But he, uh, he felt that it was better for Duke basketball. 
and for Mike's own influence in that program in retirement to have the younger guy in his 30s. Uh, Shire was, what, 33, now 34, had never been a head coach anywhere else. He was a uh, basically a creation of Coach K. As a player, he'd never coached anywhere but Duke, and he was a national championship player for him in 2010. So Shire gets the job. Krzyzewski's keeping his office on the sixth floor at Duke. He, he wants to be involved in the program. And this is a way of, he called it a continuity of excellence. And he, and he said, I learned this at West Point. You want to have a succession plan in place. And Amaker's been away from Duke for 24, 25 years. So he felt Amaker would come in with his own ideas on how to run a program. Krzyzewski wanted his program to be continued. Shire would allow him to do that in a way that Amaker wouldn't. So he talked to Tommy on a Zoom call, explained to him why it wouldn't be in the best interest of Duke for him to be the head coach. He'd have to demote an assistant coach, Nolan Smith, back to director of basketball operations to make room for Amaker for one year. And he thought it'd be an awkward dynamic between him and Shire on that staff in this final season of Coach K. So Amaker, having a, a very good job in life at Harvard, said, I, I think I should just keep this job. He could have taken it and said, the heck with it and the heck with Coach K, but he decided he had a good life at Harvard, and he opened the door for Shire to be the next head coach. Ian, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, it's just probably be an epilogue. We'll see. I mean, Duke has the Carolina game this weekend, and then they're going to ACC tournament, and then maybe he's going to win his sixth title. Um, this is just a great time for the book to come out and just to give me an exciting ending of Coach K's career. So, Ian, thanks a lot for coming on I Run Sports. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Ira, and I hope that happens. I hope they win it all. And, and by the way, UCLA did send off John Wooden with his 10th national title, so let's hope Duke does it from, uh, with, for Coach K for number six. <laughs> I'm wearing all Duke. I'm going to be – I'm pumped for it, so we'll see what happens. But it's, this is going to be very this – this tournament, and we saw when you saw the top you know, six teams in the country lose in the same night, that uh, there's about you know, 15 maybe teams that can win the title. So I'm really excited for the tournament this year. Yeah, I think, I think Duke needs Paolo Bancaro to be – more consistently aggressive and poses will on the game more than he has for much of the regular season. He's an amazing talent. There, there are periods in the game where he sort of disappears and you can't do that in the NCAA tournament. So hopefully for Duke's sake, he stays aggressive for what could be a six game run. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Ian. I really appreciate it. Take care. Ira.